0: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. A wise man once told me that mystery is the most essential ingredient of life for the following reason. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. Mark Frost wrote that, and, as a co-creator of Twin Peaks, he's a fella who might know a thing or three about the impenetrable nature of mystery, as well as its reflective nature, as in Twin Peaks, as in Inherent Vice. The truest mysteries lead not to resolutions, but reflections of ourselves. In the sunstruck and hazy, lazy seaside mystery of the Golden Fang, old Doc Sportello is able to see himself and his lost and wayward love for Shasta Fae Hepworth. And in the mystery of the film Inherent Vice, we are able to see ourselves, our loves found or lost or found again or lost forever. We're even able to see the world we find ourselves in today with its cruelty and chaos and its small kindnesses in the world of this film. Because within the cotton-dense coastal fog of mystery, we don't find answers. We find ourselves.
1: Part of why I'm having trouble explaining my reaction to Inherent Vice is because it feels like someone did research on my particular fetishes and decided to make an entire movie tailored to them. I'm fascinated by the history of Los Angeles. This is a town that was built on a foundation of shit, corruption, and crime, and shady deals, and the rich eating the poor, same as it ever was, and movies that tell detective stories against that backdrop play to my sweet spot i love james elroy and harry Bosch, and walter mosley and raymond chandler and Dashiell hammett and one of the reasons chinatown rang my bell so hard the first time i saw it was the idea that they could explain the history of water in los angeles county as a murder mystery there is so much to digest the way the film plays with memory and with chronology is fascinating One of the great detective movies slash novels of all time is The Big Sleep. And one of the things that I find most amazing about that book and the movie is that they simply don't add up. The mystery doesn't really work in a few key ways, and it doesn't matter. Well, Inherent Vice is like having someone who watched The Big Sleep at 3.45 in the morning three weeks ago while really high trying to explain the movie to you while really high again. And I love it. I love the broken way Doc processes things. I like how slowly the story comes into focus. By the time you realize it's really a movie about Doc saving someone in particular, it's late in the dense running time, and it just sort of dawns on you slowly that you're not watching a movie or the case you thought you were watching. I had no idea two and a half hours had gone by. That was today's guest. Film critic, author, podcast host, cinephile, all around inherent vice stance since the day it was first screened in 2014 the amazing the wonderful the luxuriating in his own words <laughs> upon the as they are as they are carried upon the dulcet tones of my voice drew McQueenie, thanks for coming on today
2: oh yeah i'm going to hire you to read everything from now on you sound much better doing it than i do so there we go hey i need a gig all right all right you're my new audiobook guy
1: <laughs> well that was a lovely review of the film not even a review, just that. that's, I, I don't know if you can review this movie as much as you can try to encapsulate it. One of my favorite things that you said is, this is not a film, this is a contact high. Yeah. This is something that you experience kind of,
2: you have to let it kind of hit you and well, absorb it. it's so funny because adaptation is such a it's, a, it's a really unusual process to begin with mm-hmm. because you as an artist are responding to something that someone else did and then It's a game of telephone, artistic telephone. You're passing along why you were excited by it, what it was that spoke to you. In the best case, that's what adaptation should be. It shouldn't just be a gig. It shouldn't just be, we bought a book, we need a filmmaker, here's the ninth John Grisham movie this year, (laughs) will you do it? It should be, I can't get this out of my head, it's under my skin, and I need to explain to people what it did to me. And that's what this feels like to me. It feels like Paul Thomas Anderson couldn't shake the book, just couldn't get it off of him. And this is the exorcism by which you get a book out of your system fully. And it really is him passing along to you what it was that got him so crazy about it. And I I think either you twig into that tone right at the beginning or you're just not with it. And for me, the opening credits, I've seen people check out. Where the music and the something about the vibe right at the beginning was like, eh, I don't know, really. That's I, where they check because a, a couple me, of times I've tried to show this to people and I've had people bounce off this movie, just bounce right off. Like, nope, not interested. And there's something about the vibe, and because wow. to me those
1: first eight minutes, that's where you win anyone over. I would hope so, but You've got, I mean, to cool me, ass detective shit. You've yeah. got cool ass can and vitamin C shit. You've got cool ass neon logo shit. Like, what's yeah, what it's, more do you want? Like it th- is that, that such a minutes.
2: self-possessed opening that I was in love stylistically right away. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the thing. It's, this movie is a big swing from page one, and it has to be because of who they're adapting. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that process. When you're doing Pension, you can't go halfway. You no. can't just do the story. You can't just try to convey the surface of what he does you can't have his language the same way he does so you have to visually and orally somehow give you that same sensation that comes when you're reading his words and I'm a voracious reader to give mm. you an example I, I average about a book every two days and that's true you're a machine well it's just I it's since I was a kid like I read voraciously and so my Kindle is always packed with stuff and i am mm. always got four or five books going and i I love an author like pension who makes you slow down. You can't read pension quickly no you can't just glance at a page of pension and get it. not even this book, which is encased in a fairly easy genre yeah. to surf upon. His language alone is one of the things that it, it does to you. He's, he's playing with you while mm-hmm. you read his, his words and he's playing with you and how he builds a sentence and how he builds a paragraph and how he'll lose you on a page. And, and especially in this one, the way he conveys information to you is so important yeah. because it's a detective story sort of. Um, so to find a film equivalent of that, you got to swing big. And yeah. I think he did. And I think it works as a visual and audio equivalent of that style. But, man, if you don't get it, it's and it's not even that you're wrong. If it's just not your bag, yeah. it's really not going to be your
1: bag at all. Well, not to obsess, but this is a podcast about inherent vice, mm-hmm. so obsessions are not unfamiliar to me. Yes. Uh, I have to say, I am really... I don't want to stick on this one point. I can't believe you've lost people in the first eight minutes because yeah. uh, in the very first episode with, uh, with Blake Howard, we were talking about how I was like, you know what, I'm not going to be Twitter reply guy to some of my guests who don't like this movie. I'm not going to actually lead them, them to death even though I kind of did in episode four with Fred <laughs> Hoffner. Friend, I'm really sorry. Uh, you're really great. I love your writing. I, I, I just, my feelings got hurt about Bigfoot. I'm sorry. But that my argument was I get it. If someone says, "Look, they just, it just lost me the Mickey Wolfman stuff," and then we find them, and there's still like a 45-minute stretch left to the movie, I, I I don't know what I'm what's what's important about any of this. And then there's a saxophone player, there's a really depressing sex scene. I don't get it. What is this? I get all that. And if you tell me that doesn't that doesn't ring your bell that doesn't play for you if you don't like depressed hazy lazy cutter's way styled mysteries that aren't really mysteries way good for you i'm writing about it right now it's on my brain that said if you don't get it i get it but what i can't get what i will not abide what i cannot understand or process how anyone watches the first eight minutes of this film and i know brief aside we're supposed to be talking about a scene that's like 20 minutes in we'll get there we'll get there yeah the first eight minutes of this film, to me, are pure cinematic euphoria. I will never forget seeing this film opening weekend in L.A., it was mid-December, I think, of 2014. It was at the Arclight, and I felt my—I f- was beaming. I was yeah. like, oh, my God. PTA is doing the rock and roll big sleep. Yep. He's, he's going for it. He is really going for it. The— the weird dreamy sort of Lige intro that then fades into the classic film noir at your doorstep, laying out a mystery. Johnny Greenwood's playing in the background, and then bam, cans vitamin C. Yeah. which it was a song I never really thought of as being cool until you see it with a lattice of neon font across right? it, right? Joaquin Phoenix skulking around Manhattan Beach. Well, technically, uh, the very uh, Gordita Beach, the fictional Gordita Beach. Seeing all that together, I'm like, oh my god, this is mi- this is mixing my neo noir stuff. This is mixing my loser who wants to do one good thing stuff. It's mixing mixing my Thomas Pynchon stuff, and then you got a cool ass, like I said, cool ass neon font, cool ass rock and roll song. Whatever happens after this, me and PTA, we're good, we're good. He could fuck this up, and I'll be fine.
2: Okay, I'm gonna digress from your digression for a moment because I need to vent about something Uh-oh. about the difference between somebody who really does it and somebody who says they're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. PTA, you know the long goodbye is in his DNA. Yeah. You know it is. It's yeah. one of those movies that rattles around in you like a bullet if you're mm-hmm. an Altman fan. And what bigger Altman fan is there on the planet than PTA at you this think point? Alt-
1: you think Altman was an influence on PTA? A
2: little bit. Wow. So, Someone should write about that. If the long goodbye is in your DNA mm-hmm. and you get the opportunity to make this, of course, you're going you're gonna to come at that opportunity and you're going to try to make it yours and not just do Altman. But... You've got to know that The Long Goodbye was in there for him. Mm-hmm. That's a guy who's, who's not giving interviews where he says, I want to make movies like they made in the 70s. <laughs> That's a guy who's doing it. He's doing it. That's not, I'm going to remake King of Comedy and put a comic book character in it. Mm. It's not What a saying, bad idea that would be. Yeah, it's what not saying, hey, that I want be. to make movies like in the 70s, but <laughs> I can't. Really? Because the same studio, somebody did and does on a regular <laughs> basis. So anyway- Walk the walk, don't talk the talk. It's
1: weird. I just got a DM from the Warner Brothers legal department right now.
2: Um,
1: well, yeah. well, Drew, this has been fun. It's been yep. a good chat. All right, good talking to you uh, too. My gotta corporate go. overlords are coming at the door right now <laughs> at the studio where I record. So this has been great. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I'm just um,
2: saying, man, you can do it. Yeah. I think you got to be the right artist, and I think you got to push it through with with muscle. I don't mm-hmm. think it's easy to do. Yeah, but you can make that movie if you want to, and you can make it organically. You
1: can. And I'm going to
2: let go of this. It's going to frustrate me the rest of the episode. Just t- I would like
1: the names of these people that I will tell you, that
2: here's the reaction. I put it on, and here's how you know you lose somebody. Warner Brothers really was not happy. <laughs> uh, gang, as we're sitting here
1: <laughs> in, in the lovely studio, uh, corporate studio building on yeah, Wilshire. I feel bad um, now. The I'm strobe, so sorry. The strobe alarm lights are going off, and there's an alarm in the background. I mean, I guess if we were on fire, we'd smell it, no?
2: Yeah, probably. I would hope. Jesus, boy, did you really... Boy, you really pissed off Todd Phillips. <laughs> I knew he was powerful, but wow. <laughs> so I th- I think um, when I've shown it at home, unfortunately, you have more options when you're watching something at home. When you're in a theater, you're pretty much locked in once you've decided, I'm going to go see something theatrically, yeah. unless, unless you dramatically get up and walk out. But I've seen, as soon as... The music and the vibe kicks in. I've seen people check phones. Wow! And I'm like, that's it. It's kiss of death. If I lose you right there, if your instinct there is, eh, I'm gonna check my phone real quick while music plays and whatever is going on until we get to the next thing, then you're not in this movie. This isn't a movie for you. And just realizing, because I I love I I truly believe that the the ultimate end game of film criticism is curation. Is the idea of sharing things with people. And on a very small scale, that's what I've always done since I was a kid, is I find a movie, I get excited, I share it with people. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I consider a movie like Inherent Vice more of a litmus test on the viewer than on me. It's it's I know it's a great movie. Yeah. I know it's a wonderful movie. So if I show it to you, I'm using it more as a litmus test of how adventurous are you? How, how up for this are you? Because it's not an easy film, and it doesn't necessarily spoon-feed you. So, yeah, you have to work a little for it, but I love films that ask you to do that. So it's a litmus test. It's it's a great movie to determine how down-to-hang are you. <laughs> and yet,
1: you're so right about that, and yet it's a comforting film. Don't you, I love don't it. do you feel comforted when you— I go that back that...
2: to it at least once a year, typically around this time of year, yeah. and I, I can't wait to write about the best of the decade because I'm definitely going back to it for that— but it, for me, it's a long winter's night movie. You put mm. it on when it's cold outside and you want to <laughs> snuggle down into the couch and you want to blaze up a little and you just want to be furniture with the greatest thing you could possibly be furniture <laughs> with.
1: I, I will agree. It is there. I have two go-to late night movies where yeah. like, it's like. It's one or two in the morning. I'm gonna close out my night with a movie. It's either this or Walter Hill's The Driver. It's Ooh, one of the two. Nice one, Walter. That that's a good one if, when you're tired and you want a hard 89 minutes and get out of there. But yeah, there's something so comforting about this movie. At the same time, despite the, some of the jagged emotional rifts that are in it, some of the what of what people perceive as difficulties, I don't think it's the most difficult movie. I don't think it's nearly as difficult as some people say it is to follow. It I makes don't think sense. so. Either.
2: Look, I think I think if you if you meet this movie, it gives you all the information. It gives you it, everything you It need. leads everything out there, and it does it in a very meticulous way. But it does it in language that is, um, it, it's not what people are used to. Like, no. even the scene that we're going to talk about today, we'll get into the language of that scene. Delightful and dense and insane. <laughs> and I've, I, again, I could imagine watching that and not getting a word of it. Except hmm. for, like, a couple of words that jump out, of course, but yeah. but missing big chunks of what's actually happening there. But the whole movie's throwing you fastballs full of information. Something that comes up with a lot of our guests so far, and
1: I wonder, do you think this is part of the problem? There's a unique 21st century cinematic trope. You find it in this movie. You find it in Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, where we've decided to give a bulk of our... Expository dialogue to one of our most marble mouthed, inarticulate actors who sounds sometimes like a drunken, cottonmouth
2: Jim Varney. It would be like if the usual suspects had been narrated by Benicio del Toro. <laughs> <laughs> really? What? So it's, I get it. Like, and Joaquin is, yeah, he, he eats some of the dialogue in this yeah. movie. But, I think that's Doc and I I I love that the choice he made was not to be Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. The Ryan Reynolds version of Doc where you got every word and every joke landed like a joke mm-hmm. would definitely be more commercial. This Doc I buy. I believe this Doc. And to me this is a guy that's what makes him so much funnier is that it's not punchlines and setups and jokes. It's this weird shaggy way of encountering the world and trying to take it In that is funny to me, and I think the bonus about casting Joaquin Phoenix in a film like this, and I doubt that this is
1: the reason why anyone casts Joaquin Phoenix, because you cast him because he's Joaquin Phoenix. He's an amazing actor who can do almost anything. But one of the bonuses when you cast him in a film like this, and I think it's the same in in *You Were Never Really Here*, when you have a situation where the directors of both of those films, I don't think they're they acknowledge the mystery, they use the mystery. But the mystery and the plot is not the thing that's on the forefront of their mind, and so it's a fun thematic bonus when you cast him because it's almost like there's that great scene in uh, in Ryan Johnson's Looper near the beginning where uh, the two the the two men who are the same man are sitting across. One's a younger version, one's the future version. They're sitting across from each other on the table. The younger version is like, "Whoa, whoa, wait! Do you know what I'm going to say? Do you know what I'm going to do?" and Bruce Willis as the older version says, no, we're not going to talk about time travel. We'll be here all day diagramming with straws. We're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that was a very clever writer-director way of telling the audience in a, in a smart with a smart funny line, hey, this is not what this movie is. We're yeah. not concerned about these mechanics and about whether his family dissolves in the family picture. That's all great. That's just not why. It's not why we're here. And you, I feel like with Inherent Vice or You Were Never Really Here, when you put Joaquin Phoenix in this lead role and say, hey, throw out some exposition here it's almost like the director's way of saying don't worry about this yeah. this is not why we're here we're here for Shasta Faye we're here for Doc we're here for Koi we are we know that there were that the Golden Fang is working with the CIA to run heroin out of uh, Indochina but you know what just just let it kind of simmer is in the is that back why plot. you're here yeah are you are you really here for that labyrinthine plot yeah no and so I, I, I just I will say I love that that little trope that sprinkles in now in 21st century filmmaking and, you know, not every director, like Dodd Phillips, uh, takes advantage of things like that. But there goes the alarm again, so uh, I better shut up about him. I know.
2: I know. We've clearly stumbled into a dangerous area <laughs> here. He's going to be here in, with the fang in like any minute now, knocking Lord. on the door. Um, now, Joaquin is—and I, I, I think one of the reasons, the other reasons you cast him, one of the reasons that he's so beautiful is Doc Spertello. Um, he and his brother both have a quality that is— um, really special in them they are empathy batteries there's this they demand your empathy on some level there is something about Joaquin even when unpleasant yeah I I, it it almost doesn't matter what role you put him in he always seems a little wet and he always seems like somebody just punched him and you feel (laughs) bad you do just on some innate level there's something about Joaquin that sparks that in you that that desire to protect or in some way Make him better, like, yeah. and I think that directors who take who make good use of that. Lynn Ramsey uh, uses the broken end of that scale mm-hmm. beautifully, in you're never really here. And as far back as Parenthood, he has played <laughs> damaged yeah. Yeah. and and weirdly broken and internal and so well, and it's innate. And I think you always want to fix him in some way. So Doc Spertello, as a detective, then casting this guy who. All you want is for him to be better. Like, Please, somebody solve him, whatever yeah. his problem. Is. that I think it's a really brilliant move on P.K.'s part. just call him back. Yeah. Just call just him back. Just please call yeah. him. Can't you see? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we go too far afield, I do want to ask, before we get into our scene, I would like to journey through the past mm-hmm. back to 2014, Yeah, to the twilight
2: of 2014. You've just seen Inherent Vice for the first time. What happened to you? Well, I had a I had a weird experience with it because they were going to premiere it at the New York Film Festival, mm-hmm. and I'm obviously West Coast and uh, never really do New York stuff at all. But PT and I, PTA and I, have dealt with each other in the past. We've met, we've circled each other, it, it, not in a like. There are certain filmmakers I would say I'm friendly with. Mm-hmm. He and I have more just we've encountered each other, and there's a respect there, and so. He said something to Warner Brothers, and they asked me if I wanted to see it. And I saw the film here, lost my mind for it. The next morning, they were doing interviews. I went in, I I sat with him. I told him it's my favorite film of the year. Um, I'm really having trouble, though, figuring out how to write about it. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you need to see it again. Come see it this weekend. So Warner Brothers asked me to come to New York, and I went on their ticket, and I went to the New York (laughs) Film Festival. And that was the screening, where then the shock of, I'm seeing it, I have to digest it, I have to think about it and interview him, that kind of went away. The second time I got to see it was that New York Film Festival premiere. And then that night, they did the party at the Tavern on the Green. And I got to see everybody there. That was, I think, when I finally got my head around, oh, my God, what you did. Like, (laughs) the first time, I knew I I was blown away. I knew I was really excited by it. But the second time, going back and seeing how all the beginning of it works yeah. and seeing how the storytelling threads play out and really understanding where it was going to end and where it began and getting to see it. that time, I was shaken when I talked to them that night. So that was the night I, I spoke to everybody and really got a chance to to tell them, I think you've done something special. And like Catherine Watterson That was my introduction to her on film. Like, I didn't know who she was before that. And uh, (laughs) I walked into the tavern on the green thing, and the publicist said, "Uh, she's here, and she read your review. She would like to say hello. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. That night, she was wearing a dress that was cut to the navel, and it was a very sheer little piece of dress. And so— the publicist says, oh, Catherine, he's here. She turns around, does the run-hug thing that people do, which was shocking. And then her dad's face pops up over her shoulder and goes, hi, I'm Sam, which was the weirdest way you could ever meet anybody. This is actually the plot of several of my right. nightmares. And that's the strangest way you could ever meet <laughs> anyone ever. Um, so, but uh, And then I uh, talked with um, Hong Chow that night, talked with uh, PTA that night, talked with a, a lot of the cast and I think for all of them, having just seen it for the first time, they were digesting it still. Yeah. Um. It was clear that it was not what I think anybody fully expected. And I think part of that is that the score and the the way that film, once it's cut, the way that film plays like a dream almost, like this mm-hmm. hazy, you can be on set and not get any of that and yeah. not really feel. So I think everybody was a little just blown away that night. and. I think that was one of my favorite one, two punches of seeing a film and being able to digest it before that second time. But yet seeing it quickly enough that I knew for sure at the end of the year, because you're so often under the gun. You're so often told, "Okay, you've seen 15 films in the last two weeks, plus a year's worth of movies. Now make your choice and write your list. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at a, a list years later and go, ooh ooh, was that really my favorite? Or was I just reacting in the moment, like, oh, I felt a certain way so that... 100% 2014, I got it right. It's Inherent Vice. Yeah, that's the movie. That's the one. And, you know, you're right about
1: it's definitely a, a double film. You need it twice. Yeah. Even if you love it the first time. I loved it the first time, but I will admit I went into the movie with the book in my head and as I've said so many times on this show, the book is so much more an elegy for a time passing, whereas the film
2: is much more about a person. Well, and the difference being, I think Pension lived it, and I yeah, think this, PTA this is making a movie about the thought of it or the yeah. dream of it or this what we think we lost. Yeah, and he's he's embodying
1: it literally in in a person. Yeah. And for it was an era. You know, this was his home. This was his beach. This was his movement. This was going to be the utopia that we were, that they were all going to find. And then it just never really happened because of the Golden Fang, the the, the mysterious crew that PTA says it's, they just managed to fuck it all up for the good guys all the time. And I went into the screening with that book in my head, and also just making them kind of making the mistake. I always haughtily tell other people not to make when they're watching film noir. I always say, when I'm introducing someone to something like, say, Cutter's Way, mm-hmm. I always say, don't worry about the plot. <laughs> don't. It's not, it's yeah. it's never about the plot. It's The plot is just to get our character in a room with a pretty girl who's pointing a gun at him or has a case for him. That's it. Yeah. That's, just forget about it. Focus on how the characters feel. And I made the mistake of trying to track how well this lines up with the plot as I know it from the novel. Yeah. I still loved it. My mind was blown. I was crying in the final scene the first time I saw it. But then I went back two days later like on a Tuesday morning and saw it again by myself. There was nobody in the theater but me and this, like, a bag lady. And with me and her, I just felt my brain melt. And not like the movie was, like, a psychotronic brain blower. It's just... It dissolved my brain and all that was left. This is gonna sound so pretentious. It was just it was all heart. It was all heart that second well, screening. Really I was able to
2: turn my head off and just feel the movie. I'm so glad you it's it's such a human movie. That's why I get upset when people bounce off of it. Or not upset, but it's just I'm I'm disappointed for them. I wish that they got the movie that I got out of it because it is a really human movie. And it, it is. is a really big-hearted, sweet film that is about how painful it is when you can't have the thing or the person that you want because it's not real. Yeah, and you know all of PTA's films, I would argue, they are meditations
1: on love we feel for the people we meet in the second half of our life, the people who aren't our family, whether it's a father figure in Sydney or another father figure in the rest of the family in Boogie Nights or the multitude of father figures in Magnolia or the the amazing woman
2: that's sneakily following us around in a $0.99 store. I suspect that's why he makes ensemble films because in real life- he likes to put on the circus and have a family yeah, and you have this this adopted family and so many of those films look at that same subject
1: from different angles. you know in Magnolia they even say it out loud what do we forgive? What can we forgive when someone we love hurts us in um, the master it's you know what do I do when there's someone I love who is just so different and alien from me but we complete each other but we destroy each other yeah. Um, but you go from magnolia with, and a punch drunk love. What do I do with love? That it, it, what do I do
2: with me?
1: What yeah. do I do with me? Like, Someone loves me and I'm terrible. What must that say about them? Yeah. What must say about this farce that we're feeling? It can't be real. I'm it's got to be so absolutely weird unworthy dream. of anything. Why would you want this? And going from magnolias, what can we forgive? You know, inherent vice. I think it's central question is what can we live without? Yeah. Once we know how good it is, what do we live without? What can we say goodbye to? What can we let go away? And, yeah, when you when you see something like that in a movie, or I, or I guess rather, how do you not see that in this movie is my question when people say they don't dig this. You know, when I was talking to Fran in episode four and, you know, she's an amazing writer, extraordinarily intelligent, st- extremely perceptive, loves film. And I was doing everything I could to say, well, how come you don't love it? Why don't you <laughs> love it? Don't you see that stuff? And, you know, when someone says they don't like Bigfoot, which just really killed them, I'm like, but don't you see he's just this counterpuzzle, like uh, – almost funhouse mirror version of Doc's pain. He's missing someone too. He's longing for that person. He's wantonly fellating bananas over that person. Don't you just feel that pain beneath all that? That He's he's Doc. They're one and the same. T- and here I go. I'm, I'm being the guy. I'm being the guy that I said I wasn't going to be. But uh, how do you not see that? How do you not feel that? And that's that's the one thing that, well, aside from people hating the first eight minutes, apparently, or being not caring about them, <laughs> it's hard for me to get, it's like when someone says they don't like Neil Young. It's like, really? Like that didn't kind of make you sad listening to XYZ Neil Young songs, or you don't get excited when you hear Cinnamon Girl? Or when you hear Round and Round, you don't get really really sad and you want to like call your dad or something like that? Like you don't how do you not feel that way? And that's that's where I that's I've I've come to find myself with inherent vice. It's how do you not see this as a heart movie? It's not
2: a head movie. Well, I, I think his movies are very heart driven. I think his his body of work so far one of the reasons that i like that he doesn't work as much as he could probably i'm sure he could work more i'm sure there's plenty of things people would ask him to do sure but i love that there's there's time between each of his films and it feels like they are considered when he makes one like Mm -hmm. he really has to say this or he really has to make this now and this one for an artist who works as rarely as he does to make an adaptation it's a big ask for an audience that loves him because I love Boogie Nights. It's an original. I love Magnolia. It's an, it's an original. original. They're his movies. Punch Drunk Love could have been made by no one else. The Master would have been made by no one else. Those are his films, a 1,000%. And here's an adaptation. That is his film, a 1,000%, and that is, thank God, <laughs> that is re- a relief because you always, you know, there's always a chance that they're going to lose something of themselves in this process, or that it's going to beat them in some way, or that it's just, and yet, or they try too hard to honor right, the original or they're material. too much in love with, you know, there is the there is the Zack Snyder version of love, which is <laughs> fetishistic and obsessive. You're and, gonna set off another alarm, Drew. And you and I, I look, I I actually think that Watchmen. It's the the thing that it, that happened with that is, everybody said, all these adaptations that have all these screenplay adaptations have been so far off the mark. All we want is the book. Just do the book, and he did, and that and it reveals not his flaw but the flaw with that approach. You can't just do the book. Yeah. That will never ever work. The you book have is to, one thing, cinema yeah, is a different. You have to bring yourself to that process and you as a filmmaker have to understand what the differences between those two things are. That's, when you talk about your set of expectations, it, I suspect it was more than anything your relationship with that book that you were reacting mm-hmm. to after mm-hmm. your first view because we all walk away with different things from books. The film where that happened the most acutely to me, I think, was The World According to Garp. GARP is a book that is profoundly important, not just to me as a novel, not just in terms of my understanding of how writing works, but when I read it and how I read it. it, it, it special. And I'm very protective of that book and every detail of that book. I think it is a masterwork. And that film, the first time I saw it, I went, what the, how? How? <laughs> and now... I think it's a brilliant adaptation. I think the choices they made are incredibly telling and absolutely reactive, and it's all about how do we make this a film, how do we have a different experience, and how do we make this palatable in some ways that the, the film much, would never have played.
1: That very much honors the book yeah. while at the same time acknowledging it has to be its own thing to be successful as a cinematic narrative.
2: One of the greatest moves in literature happens in that book, and it's when the accident, the bit you are familiar yeah. with it, so when the big accident happens and Michael Milton's penis gets bit off and one of the children dies and the other one loses his eye, Irving has the accident happen, then immediately tells you what happened to everyone except one person, mm-hmm. and then doesn't tell you for 100 pages. Holy shit, that's insane. <laughs> and I remember the first time you're reading it, everything that's happening is important. Everything page, that's happening though. is you devastating. The page. And you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> How? What? And you're just trying to get, because you need to know. Yeah. And it's a brilliant use of page count, just mm. knowing what he's going to do. The film doesn't have the luxury of that amount nope. of time. So they do it instantly okay. and they don't try to replicate it because they know they can't do the same move. So it's a different thing. So smart. And to me, that was an an, ob, an an abject lesson very early on in killing your babies, in being willing to have a voice, and in the difference between the two. I think that's that for a lot of pension fans. There's so little pension that's mm-hmm. ever been adapted, that it's weird. It's weird <laughs> to see his work on screen it's, finally. It's it's jarring, and not
1: jarring in a bad way. It's as you said. It's just it's fucking weird. Yeah. Like. Because his
2: worlds aren't real.
1: Where you have these labyrinthine, densely plotted, densely spoken narratives that also are are attached to some of, as PTA called them, the best dick and fart jokes jokes you've ever heard. And just the, the jarring collusion of that. And I wanted to say one more thing before we dive into the scene proper, which we should probably do at some point. Right before this scene, speaking of what a book can do versus what cinema can do and what cinema can do versus what a book can do, one of my favorite discussions about inherent vice took place with P.T.A. He was being interviewed for the L.A. Times right around the time the book came, or the film came out, and some the, the I believe the person he was speaking to was asking him, so of is she real? Like, that's that's weird what you do with her because you know in the book she's not a narrator in the book she's just Doc's kind of hippie surfer gal pal that gives him drops some wisdom his way now and again when she's not hanging out with her. Uh, Vietnam biker boyfriend as he's, you know, fixing cars on her front lawn. And instead of going, oh, yeah, she's real, or, oh, yeah, she's 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 totally in Doc's head, she's a Jiminy Cricket, he just says, hey, you know what's cool? Is I showed this movie to a friend of mine. And that scene where they're driving to Channel View Estates right. and talking about the long, sad uh, history of land use in Los Angeles, and she's sitting there talking to him, uh, and we're, we're shooting – from her window looking into the car then we cut to doc's window looking into the car and she's just not there and that's some his friend was like hey that's that's so cool man that is so cool that you did that you could only do that in a movie you could never do that in a book you could never feature that in the book so is she real and doc just goes or doc pta just goes man that's that's just movie magic man that's movie magic and that's his answer to whether yeah. the sort of leisure is real but it's also i think a great example of how you can take the the narrative material of the book and make something that is true to the book but also so uniquely cinematic you can't do that cut in yeah. a book where they're just talking and then she's blink yep you, if you write it out then it's uh, it, then it's explicit yep. what the nature of her existence is but it, cinema can give you that dreamlike quality that is uniquely its own where Maybe we just did a Godard time jump. Maybe she's just not here. Maybe she's back at home with her boyfriend, or maybe she's not here at all, and that's just his
2: Jiminy Cricket letting him know he's on the right track. Mm-hmm. And Or maybe he's driving along remembering a conversation he had with her, and so he's remembering her in the car, but as, it's really a conversation from earlier. Yeah, it's a conversation they had the day before.
1: And that's that's what you can do in a movie, Yep, and you can't do that in a God book. bless, man. Let's just go watch the movie. You want to do some Yeah, let's, let's go it. watch the movie, turn this goddamn alarm off, yeah. and go see the movie. <laughs> all right. On that note, we are going to watch this sequence. I'm very excited to watch this uh, with you. And I think it is particularly notable because it introduces two of the most, for me, significant or interesting elements of inherent vice. The first is the capital M mystery mm-hmm. of it all that we keep talking about actually doesn't matter. It, it matters in a thematic way, and it does. It all lines up. I swear to you, it does. And it involves the disappearance of the real estate big shot Mickey Wolfman and his mistress, Shasta Faye Hepworth, as well as the murder of Wolfman bodyguard Glenn Sharlock. I hope I'm not losing anybody. Uh, all of which is clouded by this ever-expanding and intersecting ring of nefarious groups from the Aryan Brotherhood to the LAPD to the FBI to something called the Golden Fang. That's the first thing that gets introduced in this yes. scene. The second thing that gets introduced into this scene, like a, a, a Pinchonian rocket firing across the sky, <laughs> is Hong Chao as Jade. One of my favorite parts of this film, this, this uniquely cinematic universe, Jade. And I believe from some of the research that I've done, you are
2: a particular fa- fan of Jade as well. I'm a particular fan of Jade. Uh, singled out in that first review, and um, in my conversation with her, she she was very grateful for the the attention in the review because it was early work by her. This is her first film, but also I think a lot of times when you are not not even a supporting character, when you are a character who has a couple of scenes, mm-hmm. and when you are an actor of color or when you're a woman. You, You don't get singled out. You rarely get a call-out in reviews. That's always been my technique, though, or or important to me, because those are the things I love in movies. I love individual moments. I love one— There is a dude in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein where (laughs) clearly he was somebody's nephew who got given his line six months before he shot his scene— and over-rehearsed it to the point where it didn't even make <laughs> sense as a line anymore. Because somebody stops him and says, Hey, um, have you seen Dr. Acula? Or whatever Dracula's yeah. fake name yeah. is. And the waiter turns around, stops dead, and looks in the camera and goes, Seen him? I don't even know him. And then walks up. You're like, holy shit, <laughs> shit dude. And But I love that. And yeah. to me, that's one of the things that makes movies great is when anything Pops out of a screen and grabs your attention, just grabs you by both ears and makes you pay attention. And Hong Chao walks onto screen. She peeks peeks, onto screen in this movie. And you're in. And she crushes this scene. It's one of those performances where somebody knew exactly what they were there for, knew what plot purpose and thematic purpose they served. So it's not just she's there to deliver exposition. She's there to deliver a piece of the puzzle that is an entire piece and couldn't be any better at her job
1: alright well let's watch her do her thing and we'll be right back I'm gonna take Planet Massage. Please take note of today's Pussy Eater special, which is good all day till closing time. Uh,
0: How much is it?
1: $14.95.
0: Well, not that $14.95 ain't a totally groovy price, but I'm actually trying to locate this guy who works for Mr. Wolfman.
1: Oh, does he eat pussy? A
0: fellow named Glenn Sherlock?
1: Oh, sure, Glenn. He comes in here. He eats pussy. Well, Glenn and I were in Chino around the same time. You seen him today? Are you a cop? (laughs) Nope. The reason I ask is if you were a cop, you'd be entitled to a free preview of our Pussy Eater special. What
0: well, about a less PI?
1: Hey, Bambi! <laughs> oh,
0: my. Oh, so, um, where do we, um... Uh,
2: uh, 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 not you, bomb brain. Oh,
0: oh. Oh. A, I thought it was here, where it's here, which is uh a procedure specials. What that means is uh
1: Start at the end of that and work our way backwards if you're going to have a detective movie and that's one of the many myriad of things that this film is, is it's a detective film you've got to have some of the tropes and one of my favorite kind of subtropes the de- the detective movie you got to have the knockout yeah where the moment where someone knocks our wayward private dick into oblivion uh all these guys are working with concussions ex- oh them. my god the ugh, and, you know, my favorite used to be um, this 1944 movie, tomorrow movie, Murder, My Sweet. Oh, great one. Where he just, he gets knocked out and he walks through this spidery abyss with all these Twilight Zone doors, just like Rod surly ing at him. It's uh, <laughs> a great to, one. To use a word, like fucking-ing. Just Rod surly ing at him. And he's just, you know, running throughout until he falls out of the abyss and back into consciousness. This supplanted that, not because... Of the perfectly timed baseball bat that shoots out from the purple shagged uh, corner wall, it is that amazing, perfectly timed Daffy Duck. It's it's half a rabbit punch, and almost like he's trying to climb a ladder out of the unconsciousness that he's falling into. <laughs> unconsciousness that he's falling into. Yeah. And when people talk about you know what a serious you know method De Niro esque actor Joaquin Phoenix is and how daunting he can be. I always think of this little scene yep. like, and how – who else could have done that little bit of business, that well, perfect I think this, little tag?
2: This and her happen so close back to back, and the, both of them are full of beautiful little grace notes of comedy. Mm-hmm. He's funny. He's really funny. He's and really funny when he's allowed We to don't often cast him that way. I think he is – because of what we talked about and that, that empathy response that he triggers, he's often cast in dramas and he's mm-hmm. often cast for that. But, yeah, he can be wicked funny when he wants to. And, yeah, there's no there's no other place we can go than right
1: back to, to the beginning and jump to Jade. We yep. gotta, i got to start talking about Jade yep. and Hong Chao's performance and how from the moment she's on screen, when she, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you're following along with the film or you've at least seen the film so you know what, what this means. When I say that she peeks out of the painted woman's vagina. Yep. <laughs> to to it, With this very stern, all right, who's here to fuck with me? Is this A.B.? Is it Arian Brotherhood? Is this the LAPD? Sees this stoner guy and then shuts the door. But when she comes out, she's
2: on. She's, yeah. a, she's a pro now and she is on. Well, and she uses the language of that place mm-hmm. as a... It's like it's like it's the beginning of a boxing match, and he never gets his gloves up, not <laughs> once, because yeah. she comes out and she immediately pussying special, boom, 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 and he doesn't know, and he tries. He certainly plays back. Uh,
1: not that's not a super groovy price, but
2: uh... I have adopted certain pieces of this film into my vernacular, into mm-hmm. my common usage. Uh, not that fourteen ninety five in the super groovy price is a great one. <laughs> the other one, which is not from our scene, is multi penekoken, and I uh, boy. When it's Pancake Day, that gets healed a lot.
1: Whenever anyone asks me anything difficult, I just go, we'll see what we can see.
2: <laughs> but, th- yes, the, uh, the barrage of language she uses is a disarming tactic, and she's hilarious yeah. at it. And I love the—we've seen a million movies and SVU episodes where, are you a cop, and you have to tell me if you're a cop. Her tactic is totally different. Her yeah. tactic is, well, if you are, you get a free preview.
1: Well, and well,
2: how about a licensed PI? Yeah. Uh, Awesome, and it is—that is the funniest—she diffuses him utterly. Any questions he's asking, anything he's trying to—as a technique, when running up against a private investigator, he's done. Yeah. He's done. Even if they hadn't had the dude down the hall, he was done. And she has to, because as we're going to learn later,
1: they are—the Golden Fang is laundering their heroin cash out of of this place, in addition to it being a brothel. She's she has to be on point, point. and that's something that you don't get the first time through. You're just like, well, who's this Daffy kind of screwball Howard Hawks esque gal mm-hmm. that's just talking circles? Like, she's just a horny hippie chick. That's all she is. But yeah, when you do rewatch this, she's playing this on so many different levels. She's she has to be the she's the pro in this scene. Not well. Dumb. Her
2: later scene is really masterful in terms of tying together what Jade does or doesn't know and how ahead mm-hmm. of the curve she is. Mm-hmm. And she is. One of the few characters that actually has a basic functioning knowledge of what's happening in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty impressive because almost everybody has a piece, but very few people have that picture. She's got a pretty good picture she's, up front. She's the only one. That when, you know, what's the golden thing? Is it a boat? And
1: in that amazing, just rat-a-tat-tat, supercharged way, she relieves the character— of the burden of exposition by her nature of delivering it and making it so a part of her personality and character that it feels so organic that you're never sitting there with her. There's a beat where she, where Doc says, you know, what is the golden thing of the boat? And she's like, they're an Indo Chinese heroin cartel, a vertical package. They grow it, bring it in, step on it, run it stateside networks of local street dealers. And they take a separate percentage off of each operation, which includes chick planet massage. Uh, that's a novel's worth yeah. of background, explaining the the conspiratorial firmaments that undergird this entire story. And she just
2: drops it off while hanging in Doc's window. Well, and here's where the admiration is for Hong Chow, not just Jade. Um, she understood that the only way to play this is the Howard Hawks technique. Yeah. That's the only way you play this character and make it work. And she Howard Hawks is the shit out of both of her scenes, <laughs> which is that machine gun rat-a-tat. And yet there's rhythm to it. There's humor to it. She finds the beats. It's not just say it fast, mm-hmm. and that's a mistake that I think a lot of actors make. Um, it's it's a tricky thing. We saw there are certain people who, when they have the skill for it, they really have a skill for it. And I, Hong Chow is a terrific comedian who I really wish people would use in big comic roles because her chops are, she's made for
1: it, insane. Uh, you know, um, Kim Morgan and her piece on this movie, for the New Beverly. She compared her to Joan Blondell. Yep. The, the, great the, the comparison. Pre, pre-code vaudevillian actress. Yep. Um, same kind of motor mouth activity and delivery. And and owns
2: a scene. She walks in and owns it. They and look, she's up against Joaquin Phoenix, who is Doc yep. Sportello at his buzziest in the scene. He's very mm-hmm. funny here. The art direction around her, which is insanity. The naked lady behind her on the wall is great. The chick planet chick massage planet. Uh, menu board behind is her always is ever incredibly yeah. distracting. <laughs> it's The whole set is designed to draw your attention away from her. She owns that moment. She walks in and there's nothing else on the screen. Well, not only that,
1: something that I was thinking about today when I was re-watching the scene for this episode, you, Joaquin Phoenix, Martin Short, Josh Brolin, Reese Witherspoon, Michael K. Williams, Martin Donovan, Eric Roberts, Benicio Del Toro, Jenna Malone, Jeannie Berlin for two seconds. You have all of these outsized performers and personalities sometimes they show up for a whole scene sometimes they' like doc they're literally in every single sequence of the film the fact that you watch this movie she has two major scenes of expositional delivery one kind of smaller scene where she's at club asiatique and then another where she's doesn't even say a word she's just in doc's car with dinas while they're making a handoff at the end Maybe a total of five minutes, if that. Probably less than that of screen time. And yet, with all of those stars who rarely are aligned in a single film like this anymore, you come out of that movie and one of the first things you think of is, who the hell was Jade? Who mm-hmm. was that? Who was that? How have I not seen her before? Because she'd only done episodic television before this. It was her first film role. But also, as you said, how is she not anchoring every single Comedy, yeah. or at least one comedy per year, because she is she's built for this. But she she, uh, she uses those chops to so relieve this film of the scenes. Although there are probably some people that still do it. Apparently, they did it in the first scene with you. The scenes where you tune out and you're like, oh, okay, here's this is because this is mm-hmm. how the bad guy knows the good guy, and this is this, yeah. and I gotta, oh god, and now I need a whiteboard, and I gotta connect all this together. Jesus. She makes it fun, and she makes it, you don't realize you're being spoon-fed the information you need to get to the end with her. And that's why she has a perfect, perfect bit of casting. Is She never makes you think for a minute, okay, here's the scene. This is the scene I have to deal with to get to the end.
2: It's funny because I, I know our generation probably does this more than a lot of uh, either generations before us or after us, but Looney Tunes references work for me because <laughs> we grew up on those archetypes, and they are such yeah. strongly drawn archetypes. The Daffy Duck move that you talk about with Rock Phoenix, that absolutely, it's that futile, I'm going down and I'm going to keep mm-hmm. fighting. And that's perfect. Jade is the Bugs Bunny archetype. where When she walks <laughs> she in, somebody's getting hurt. Somebody's getting, she would just walk in, comment on it, and walk away. And mm-hmm. that's kind of her role in the movie is she glances through this. She's Jade's going to be fine. Yeah. Whatever else happens, she's fine. This is not going to affect her. She's going to give him a little bit of information she's going to but she shows up and she is so knowledgeable and there is such a sense of fun about the way she does it that it really is charming at a time where it shouldn't be or mm-hmm. where any almost anybody would not play this this way it's it's what pta does so beautifully is understand that little character moments can be the things that speak loudest to yeah. us and you know, if you find the right person for that part, if you go looking and you find somebody who's going to really own that role, this is what happens. We're on a podcast five years <laughs> later talking about somebody who has two scenes. Yeah, and you know, credit
1: where it's due, you have to give it to her uh, with Jade being her invention because this dialogue on the page, as I said, this is this yep. is that same old dialogue that yep. every movie like this has to have, but can sometimes be a bit of a slog to get through. And she even said in interviews after the film came out, that PTA came to her and essentially said, and I think this is how he treats most of his actors, he said, hey, this character is up to you. The research, the way you do it, I'm not going to say make her this or that. This is on you. Like This is is yours to figure out. And, okay, I'll see you when we start shooting. And so all of that stuff that you just mentioned, all of these things about Jade... These are. This is Hong Chao's
2: invention. This is what she brings to the table. And can you imagine, as a director, how delightful that is to—first of all, it's a a remarkable amount of trust Mm -hmm. that you give to these actors. But that's what you hope for, is that you're going to give an actor that kind of trust, and then when they're going to come back to you, this is going to be the gift they give you. Mm -hmm. When she showed up as Jade, tell me he wasn't laughing up his sleeve. Like, what— is happening oh my god this is so good but <laughs> like, the, also the feeling of relief we're like oh we're gonna make this yeah thing. like i've
1: got oh, this thing wow. this one's
2: done this yeah. scene's done we're good i'm good here and everything else and it whatever. really is an important moment because it, you've got a lot of a lot of big energy before this mm-hmm. and then you have the entrance of bigfoot right after this yeah you want to talk about a place where you could easily get lost in this movie and where it could vanish mm-hmm. it could be this whole middle section this whole moment we're talking about could just be this lost nothing, this digression. And while digression is certainly the game plan with pension and the mm-hmm. game plan with this movie, um, you don't want it to be digression that feels like wasted time. Yeah. And this is the perfect example of mean, There's not anything wasted about a second of what we do here we didn't even mention that insane shot as doc's walking in <laughs> and first we had that beautiful shot of him under the red banners which We're, is so gorgeous and such a superhero shot
1: of him it's which i need to call out just for uh, my producer blake from one heat minute i believe that is his favorite shot in oh, the entire great. film so i'm just going to point that out blake we love this scene too
2: it's so
0: we
1: pretty acknowledge you
2: and then he walks up the steps and he has that moment returns and he looks like he senses something which is also very looney tunes ask yeah that, like no I guess I'm okay and then when he turns back around we get the wave of dudes out behind him that is awesome Um, and a great crazy surreal image that's the other thing this movie frequently feels yes it's not grounded in the real world that's a very surreal beat Mm -hmm. there's nothing in this that couldn't happen or wouldn't happen in the real world there's nothing in it that's absurd to the point of not being possible Mm -hmm. but it's just the, the way it's also playfully staged and that to me is a hilarious shot um I don't know if it plays as broad comedy to anybody else, but I think a lot of this movie is really laugh-out-loud funny.
1: Well, I think this is one of the funniest sequences in the
2: entire film. Yeah.
1: But to, uh, to your point there, as you say, there's a lot of surreality in this film, but maybe nothing quite so surreal that it couldn't have. I mean, this is not Mulholland Drive. Oh, I guess Mulholland Drive could happen yeah. from, from within the point of view of the character's head. Uh, it's a whole other podcast. Yeah. That said, I think what makes this film, film difficult for some are sequences like that where you have those ops coming up over the hills to put the snatch on Mickey Wolfman. That's what they're doing, in case you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's presented to us, but it's never really explained to yeah. us. And I think that's where some people get lost is, it's fine if you're going to do this flourish for me. I get it. That's cool. But you got to tell me what it is. And that's what PTA does not do, as we were saying, with Sort of Liege disappearing in the car. At no point is that mentioned or discussed. No one sits around going, hey, wasn't it weird that one time we were at Pipeline Pizza and you were just kind of talking to thin air while we were eating our slices? Like, what was that about? Were you just high or everything cool? Do you remember that day Sorley was here and then (laughs) she's just gone? (laughs) What was that about? Yeah, and that's, I think, something that does confound some people. And I actually, I would argue, I do think that this is actually the stretch of film where – the normal folks who aren't you and i do start to get lost because and not so it. not so much because of the 1 2 punch introduction of these two very large characters Bigfoot Bjornsen and Jade but for the the reason the other reason that i said this sequence is so significant this is the beginning of the mystery beforehand we had a crime plot we had a rich wife putting this uh, booby house snatch on her rich husband and her rich husband's mistress didn't want to be a part of it so she's telling her detective ex-old man, "Hey, check this out. This 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 isn't good. This is this is real deal shit. I'm involved in here. You need to fix this." That's a plot. Here, though, is where we actually get the mystery.
2: Well, it's also the point of no return for Doc because he's left out there next to that dead guy. Now he's not able to just walk away easily. No, there's he's no, tied to this Yeah, now. there's no easy extrication. Now suddenly you're in it. Mm-hmm. So it is a real turning point moment where you've poking around in this thing now has gotten you permanently pulled in. So now there's no way forward except to solve it, to, to to move through this thing. And our vantage is his vantage. We are
1: pulled in now, too. We don't have the God's eye view where we're able to see all these interlocking and intersecting right. pieces. We never really do. We just pick up enough that it, once it's over, we can sit down and diagram it and figure it out. But we are with him in this and I think that is where a lot of people get lost is there's no God spot in this movie aside from the director's chair. There's no vantage upon which you can see this film and go, oh, okay, I get it. That just comes with experiencing it and not fighting or wriggling
2: against it, which is kind of what Doc has, Doc has to do. He just has to ride the wave of this, but that's. Well, there's two, I mean, there's really two forms of storytelling and it's experiential or expositional. And mm-hmm. I think this is experiential. I think it is very much meant to be that you have this this same sensations and at the end of it, you should feel the same way he does. Mm-hmm. And I think that that slight disconnection from ever getting all the answers easily laid out to you that's that's part of that experience so yeah you're not meant to to feel settled and done and have it all handed to you in a bow at the end of the film because that's kind of the point doc doesn't either and why would you yeah but then that's kind of one of the points of the film is that it doesn't just wrap up this
1: don't mean we're not back this don't mean we're back together right things don't just wrap up that said as i've said before and this is one of the few sticking points i have the where i'll let myself get into an argument with people the movie makes total sense. Mm. It makes complete sense. And if you'll excuse me for a moment. Sure. This is the sixth episode of that of this show. Now that we're getting knee deep in the mystery, I'm going to pull a jade and I'm just going to buzz through what this mystery is for our listeners because I've already right. had people go, like, you can't talk about this movie because it doesn't make any sense. The things you say don't make any sense. So I'm going to get this out of the way and we're going to get back to the movie. Okay. But I'm going to lay this out. Mickey Wolfman is a rich real estate magnate who's discovered acid and has lost his mind and is building free housing for hippies as a way of making amends for his prior hyper-capitalist ways. The FBI, looking to get in on the Vegas Strip to keep an eye on the mob, see Mickey's willingness to spend as an opportunity to buy up some of that Vegas real estate and collude. And so they collude with these vast conspiratorial force, forces known as the Golden Fang as well as Mickey's wife Sloan to put a nuthouse snatch on Wolfman locking him away at the Golden Fang-owned Criskylodone Institute, which is a place typically used to rewire communists into right-wing hardhats and to help clean up heroin junkies addicted to the Fang's own Southeast Asian heroin so that they can then pay Fang-affiliated dentists to replace their heroin-rotted teeth, all before a Fang-tainted American life drives them to heroin again in a never-ending loop of Fang-funded and Fang-profited misery. Also, in rewiring Mickey's acid-tainted neurons... The Fang convinces Mickey to abandon his plans of giving away free housing and brings him back into the fold as yet another horrible millionaire American. And adjacent to all this, Wolfman's mistress Shasta Hepworth is approached by Sloan Wolfman to assist in this booby house kidnapping and alerts her ex-old man, private investigator Larry Doc Portello, who in the course of his investigation discovers the existence of the Fang, its nefarious intent towards the souring of the American fate by colluding with men like Mickey, As well as its imprisonment of well-meaning but wayward ex-junkies like Session sax player Koi Harlingen, whom Doc, with the assistance of LAPD detective Bigfoot Bjornsson, whose partner was murdered by the Fang operative Adrian Prussia, helps extricate Koi out of the Fang and back into the loving arms of his wife and child, all of which, the Fang, Shastafe, the Harlingens, Mickey, Bigfoot, Doc, clouds into a gargantuan cannaboid fog of metaphors, metaphors that in the book represent the heartbreaking loss of an era and all of its utopian promise, but in the film represent... The life wrecking heartbreak of what it is to simply lose a single person who feels like your entire world. Whew. Amen. So, are we good, everybody? Or, th- are we? Are see, we? Are I, we locked in? Is it absurd? Yes. <laughs> does it make sense? It yes. does make sense. Yeah. It, it, I, I mean.
2: As convoluted as that sounds, I mean, I've seen more convoluted Michael Bay movies than yeah, that. and it's um, it's really just a plot to get people on the hook and then keep them on the hook. Yeah, and he stumbles into it sideways because his girlfriend made the mis- his ex girlfriend made the mistake of warning somebody. Yeah. that's it. That's it. That's it. That's all. And if she hadn't been involved, he never would have known any of it. Like no. the whole rest of this world is only impacted because he misses Shasta. Yeah, and that's it. And while it's you
1: know i have said you know this is one of those mystery movies where hey the mystery if it if it fucks you up put it aside you don't need it to get it the movie mm-hmm. you don't need it to get what the movie is about about the heart of the film but what i also love about the film is if you do put get your arms around the mystery of it the mystery is so thematically interlaced with the meaning of the film because the yeah. the whole mystery is simply about how things get lost the inherent vice of time that time takes everything away eventually You can't insure against it. Glass breaks, ex-old ladies disappear. Uh, You know, eggs will uh, will, uh, shatter and fall off a shelf, eras end. And that's all this is. That's all it is, and that's all the mystery is. It's about things ending in the face of the status quo always being there, everything always returning to that status quo and in this world of inherent vice the status quo is everything's going to change everything good is going to change yeah. mostly the bad stuff stays
2: yeah the rich are going to keep feeding off of everybody and mm-hmm. it's going to stay the same that system he didn't dent that system he doesn't change anything no. he doesn't he doesn't end it he doesn't there's no big no bad guy goes down in flames it's not <laughs> it, it's it's and i think that's dissatisfying on some level mm-hmm. is that but the true heroic thing in this movie is to make one human difference in yeah. somebody else's life and it's not even for him in the end no and that's what gets me about that yeah breaks my heart for doc is that when doc finally realizes what one good thing he can do and then has zero to do with him he does it yeah. he does it anyway and it's it is a really lovely gesture and a powerful gesture in the face of futility and impossible um, machinery that you mm. cannot affect in any way and the fact that he even,
1: even in doing that, he does with such melancholy, and that he makes a choice in one of the best scenes of the film when he's. i apologies to the listeners because I'm always going to bring this scene up. That moment where he's sitting in his kitchen with Sordileche, and she's like, "What's going to keep you up at night? Like, what's going to when all this is said and done? What aren't you going to be able to let go of?" Yep. He doesn't, for the first time in the film, whether he's vocalizing it or not, you know, it, he's always thinking this. When she says, "What are you not going to be able to let go of?" For the first time in the film, his answer is not Shasta Faye Hepworth. Yeah. yeah. It's saxophone players and the little kid blues, and whatever, whatever, whatever sins Coy Harlingen committed, he's like a dad not being able to see his little kid. He's like that, just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, that and one. I can't. But when he does it, the, the the gut punch for me, and boy, we are far afield of our of our scene, but this this is the show. When he drops Coy off. And you hear Hope Harlingen howling with joy and waving and hugging him. Doc doesn't even look. He's looking at his passenger seat where Shasta Faye should be. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking about what he didn't save and what choice, the choice he made yeah, to, not, to not extricate her from the Fang or from Wolfman or from the life that she's living ever since that she ever since she left. He didn't make a deal to leverage her with the Fang or anything like that. He's like, I just want to get this dad home. That's something I can do that's untainted by yeah. all of this and boy if that doesn't make your heart's just three sizes too big yeah. when you watch this movie then again this is probably not the flick for you yeah. but that that that's what gets to me when i watch this movie is how as you said the the status quo it's not going to change the bad guys always going to be there um, and you know you're like yeah there's no there's no bad guy going down adrian prussia a low level hitter takes a bullet to the to the chest that's it but When the movie ends, we don't even know who's atop the Golden Fang. No. We don't even know if there is a top to the Fang. We don't know if it's Nixon or if Nixon's actually one of the bottom rung players and that, you know, someone put him there. All we know is there's a thing out there that's very nebulous that seems to. Boy, and if that doesn't say at all
2: about that era, because that is, and it's interesting. I always wondered what it felt like to live through my very first political memory, my very first memory of the word politics or that that was a thing out there was Watergate on television mm. so we're we're living through a moment again where it's it, those feelings are very real now that you know our government doesn't have our best interests at heart anymore and that that is a terrifying way to live and so much of the si- late 60s and early 70s so much of our pop culture was really about that distrust that institutional distrust that the young suddenly had where, you you're not only not looking out for us, you want to kill you us. You want to hurt you us. You hate us. Yeah. And that was and that is so much, I think, a a piece of sort of what that what that's about. I I, I really Sorry, I kinda I, I in a very pension esque move, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Um,
1: <laughs> well, let me hop on here and say something really quickly to that. One of the things I also don't get, and this really should not devolve into me and you just going, "How come people don't like this movie?" No, no, not at all. But one of the things I, I think I it's more about explaining what yeah. we see. One of the things that grabs me about this, and one of the billions things, obviously, because I'm doing this show. One of the things that I love about this film is how both of a time it is, mm-hmm. but also how much it doesn't. It really doesn't lay it on thick that this is in 1970. There, are, and as much as I, I adore Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there aren't those big. Shots of Hollywood Boulevard, likely because PTA couldn't afford it, but also because I think part of this movie is meant to feel of any time. It's why we get these very almost four by three looking shots of people sitting in kitchens talking about their problems, sitting in cars talking about their problems. There's not these wide, hippie populated, uh, long hair jacketed vistas. It's about now. And one of the things that feels very now to me in this film is that bit about how, at least as it comes to the heroin trade, the Golden Fang's circular business design is they bring in, via the CIA, heroin from the Vietnam War, which they are perpetuating through Nixon. They are creating the Vietnam War to develop a heroin pipeline. But also, that Vietnam War is instituted to keep Americans depressed. So they will want to buy heroin. And then when they get to the point where they're about ready to die, you go to a place like the Kylodone Institute. You kick, you get straight, you get your teeth fixed by Golden Fang dentists, and get now your you're walking. Hooked. You're walking around with your big, big, happy, smiley teeth, but you're still fucking miserable because of Nixon as president and the yeah. Vietnam War is going on. So eventually you're going to relapse, and if that does not feel like the cycle of consumerism in 2019 where you you turn on the news and you see fucking covfefe. Yep. What does oh, – I, I can't. I
2: can't today. Yep. I, I, I got to tune out. I got to do something. Yep. I got to make myself feel better somehow. You got to the point I was trying to make, and this is where my digression was going, which is that amorphous fear that that generation felt, I think, that was so much a part of that Perfect late phrase. 60s, early 70s. That's that's a part of our daily lives again. Mm-hmm. And that is so much what this film is driven by, is that feeling that there's some giant thing that's going to land on you mm-hmm. that you can't do anything about, you can't fight. That's what makes Doc's gesture so powerful, is when you feel that, it is little decencies that matter. And I do think that 100% relatable right now. I I, <laughs> so I know people much. that have just crawling anxiety since 2016 non-stop and it's they can't point at any one thing it is just an accumulation of all of it and because when it's you not live just, through it's not that. just the president yeah when you live through that when you live through an era where everybody's crazy where it's all kind of crazy how how do you stay sane? how what do you hold on to what's your anchor and i think decency is a really good answer i think doc is for him that's the one gesture um and we see in Bigfoot, we see a psychosis. Bigfoot is a man of his age in <laughs> so many ways.
1: And longing for that age the way Pynchon longs for his and the way Doc is just beginning mm-hmm. to long for his. Yeah,
2: and and that reactionary nature of Bigfoot, I, I, there's a reason that character rings like a bell when we watch it <laughs> right now. Is There's a lot of Bigfoots. There's a lot of people that, that won't to live that way mm-hmm. and are afraid that that's not po- and empowered at all they will bigfoot is so threatening and aggressive and fascinating and as a performance it's one of the few performances i can imagine standing up next to what joaquin is doing and for scene after scene after scene mm-hmm. and never giving an inch in either direction they are perfectly matched in this film to co-own the movie yeah either one of them miscast or cast in the wrong way that movie becomes unbalanced and somebody owns it.
1: And I would go so far as to say no slur against Joaquin Phoenix whatsoever. I think other people could play uh, could play Doc and make it mm-hmm. work. I have a hard time imagining anyone at this point doing what Josh Brolin does in this movie and making it work and I think there have a
2: lot of 50s dudes like him. No
1: with that lantern jawed yep. head yep. and that kind of almost you know, this is going to sound a lot. You know, he's he's a, a piece of cinematic masculinity that we don't see anymore. We haven't really seen since like Jimmy Conn and Thief. Yep. I call him Jimmy because like, I'm cool because we're friends. Yeah. And, me and Jimmy. Well, I
2: know you used to go to Playboy Mansion and yeah, hang out. Yeah.
1: Me and Jim Bob Khan. Um. <laughs> so there is a kind of masculinity and strength, but also that he fearlessly, fearlessly matches that masculinity with an utter neutered. Terror that yeah. fuels it. But he it's never super big. Maybe in the one scene with his wife is it big, and it's big intentionally in that scene. You know, I ask you for one fucking day a week, Christian. Uh, but, <laughs> it's just so perfect. Um, the thing about Bigfoot is it's hard to imagine anyone with the exception, and I mentioned this in episode two with Kim Morgan, maybe Ralph Meeker, maybe Ralph Meeker could do this. Yeah. But Ralph Meeker in 1955 or Josh Brolin in 2014 are the only human beings in the history of human beings that I can imagine doing the level of nuance. And I know that that word sounds weird next to Bigfoot Bjornson, no. But there is a lot of quiet, Dude, nuanced character sketching going you, on in that performance. You
2: could teach an acting class with Jade Scene mm-hmm. on how to come in and just destroy with, like you said, pure exposition. How to, how to really just own a scene and build a character around exposition. You could also teach an acting seminar on that scene with that goddamn chocolate banana. There is <laughs> nothing like it. I have never seen an actor intimidate another actor with food more. And that chocolate banana scene ruined The press screening. (laughs) The press screening was over after that. You didn't know what was happening in that room. And then the New York Film Festival screening. After that scene, again, just for like five minutes, people couldn't calm down. There was just this weird inner, because it's so aggressive, and it's so crazy, and it's such a giant choice, and he is putting him on the spot in every possible way. And as an audience, you get excited when you see two actors who are so clearly just throwing Blows at one another like that in a sequence and sometimes doing it I think
1: in a very reactive you you know you keep using boxing as a metaphor in a very reactive oh shit this guy's coming at me yeah I have have to really bring out the best that I have I have to throw the wildest aimless unprotected left hook that I have because that's the only way I can stay on my
2: feet. Knowing how he works and knowing the the people that have worked with him and, and hearing stories about the way he loves to provoke reactions yeah. and he loves to get real reactions. And not in that shitty Jared Leto, I'm gonna send you a condom full of dead rats or whatever. But in a in a actor's way where he mm-hmm. understands that it's choices. It's just about when you make a choice that's a real choice, that other actor has the moment where they get to decide, do I go? Am I doing this too? Is this what we're doing now? Speaking of acting classes, and again,
1: hey, you know what? We're we'll circle back to our, the scene at hand eventually, probably. Speaking of Bigfoot moments, probably the most, the third most famous Bigfoot moment from this film, after the, longingly blowing a banana that may or may not remind him of his uh, former partner Vincent and Delicato, and of course the pancake sequence. There, there is the scene at the end of the film, the second to last scene, wherein a very heartbroken Bigfoot who is really, you know, he did kind of put Doc in a in a corner and make him kill the man that killed his partner. Oh, yeah. But he also did Doc a solid where he gave him, in the form of a trunk form of heroin, the leverage he needed to extricate Koi from the fang. and. There's they have, have a
2: fascinating love hate relationship. This, this love loathing relationship. Like, well,
1: they're like they are brothers. Like when when in that scene where King says, "You know, do you need a keeper?" And he's like, "You're not my brother," or he's like, "You could use a keeper." Um, they are like brothers, like fighting brothers. And that scene in which Bigfoot is so heartbroken, and is basically like, "You never, you never called me. We've been through some shit, man. You didn't call me back," and the only way he can connect to Doc in his facile kind of viewing of Doc as a hippie um, is to smoke pot with Doc. And in the script, and as it was originally filmed, he just yanks Doc's joint and takes a puff, and that's the scene. And he gets up, and he walks out crying, and, you know. (laughs) It's the next scene, or the next take. Brolin told P.T., I'm going to try something. Can I eat the cigarette? Can I eat the joint? And, you know, yeah, I mean. Do it, man. Because by all accounts, this was a wild ass set. Uh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, if you got to do it, do it. And so in the next take, based on what Joaquin was doing and giving him, Brolin's like, I gotta, I gotta get big. I have to get bigger than this. Bigfoot in his grief would, if I am a funhouse mirror to what yeah. Doc is feeling, I have to stretch choice. it. Yeah. I have to stretch it, and I make it big because I am. Doc is like the film projector. And Bigfoot is like the actual screen, and it's got to be big. It's got to be drive-in theater size. So next scene, he eats the cigarette. I keep calling it a cigarette, marijuana cigarette, like I'm a 1955 uh, LAPD officer. He takes <laughs> okay, the Jack ma- Webb. <laughs> he, t- he takes the marijuana cigarette and he ingests it. <laughs> but uh, he takes the joint. He chews it up and he eats it, right? And then it wasn't enough. And this is not yeah. PTA's direction. This was Brolin going, I'm not meeting him toe-to-toe. With if we are at the tail end of a two-and-a-half-hour movie. that He's gone through some shit. His heart's been broken. He misses this girl. He misses so much. He misses this entire era. I'm doing the same. I'm missing my dude, who I was probably in love with. I'm missing the 50s. but I've been doing it for a decade longer than this kid has. Right. And so I have to come at this with everything I have. And his solution was... Can you get some edible greens on this plate so I can just swallow it fucking whole? And when you want to talk about an acting class, it's that intuitive kind of knowledge of your character and what role you serve and what role your character serves in the film that Brolin's like, I can't just puff his joint and walk out. I've kicked his door down heartbroken crying because he hasn't called me back after we went through hell together standing up against the thing that is ruining the lives of everyone in this country. I can't just toke and leave, and I can't just steal and leave or kick his door down and leave. I have to eat the one thing I think has value to this man yeah. so that I can connect with him. And so you want to talk about master classes and acting. Josh Brolin in this film, as big as that moment is and as big as so much of what he does in this film is, Everything has a reason. It's not just meant to be a funny gif. It is so intrinsic to the character and the film. And I have to say, I really do think, as much as I love Hong Chao, as much as I love Joaquin Phoenix, I, I genuinely believe, from a performance standpoint, the two most intricate and complicated bits of performance in Inherent Vice are done by Katherine Waterston and by
2: yeah. Brolin. Yeah, well, the the, the Waterston, the... The, I assume you're talking about the scene. With I'm Kathy. talking about the scene. Yeah, which is uh, this is PTA in general. Man, his respect for actors and his love for actors is so profound. And what he does with his films is he creates these just one space after another for these amazing moments to mm-hmm. play out. And then he's smart enough to let them play out to actually not just create a play. Okay, set piece insert here. Yeah, big moment insert here. It's one thing to say you're going to get to a, the emotional crescendo of Magnolia. It's another thing to get Tom Cruise and Jason Robards in that room <laughs> and to let it rip yeah. and to see what happens. It's another thing, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, Bigfoot and and Doc have their final moment and it kind of sums it all up in a puff of smoke. It's another thing to play it out. And his respect for his actors is so profound. Think of, th- think of that moment in Boogie Nights with... Philip Seymour Hoffman, desperately trying to show off his car. just You like, wants you like to it, show right? Car, you think it's cool, right? You like the color,
1: the red? It's like there, yours. There is, he, that pathetic car that's just painted the same color.
2: Oh, it gets me, man. And he, But he he does, in in film after film, and scene after scene, he makes room for people mm-hmm. and then gives them their, their room. He yeah. lets them have it. It's not enough to just build the place. It's then to do the work. It's remarkable what what he's gotten out of his casts over the course of his career, and this film just has one terrific performance after another, and and it makes sense that everybody who comes in here, whatever their scene is, to talk about. That Bigfoot ends up back in that conversation. It makes sense. I I don't know that there's Bigfoot has
1: yet to show up in this goddamn movie. Well, and we, I we don't got think
2: right up to I know, him. We I got know. right there.
1: I could see him from where we were. I don't think <laughs> that there is a single episode of this show. We are six episodes deep. Bigfoot shows up in episode seven. I don't think there's been a single episode that doesn't feature a five to fifteen minute digression where it's like Look, I know he's not in the scene, but I really, you know, can we mention But it's the Big shadow foot?
2: of the film. This film yeah. is all so intricately connected. It is a web. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can talk about one moment in this scene without starting to pull those threads apart. And that's it's really brilliant construction. For a film that is as hazy and as um, addled <laughs> as this one is at times, it's also so brilliantly built. It is. And,
1: you know, I've written about this film as well uh, for Bright Wall Dark Room. And in doing so.
2: Which, by the way, if you. Uh, I assume you're reading that if you listen to this, but it's one of the film sites I truly love.
1: Oh, it, it, bless your heart. They, it, it's an amazing, amazing It's the real place. deal. You should go there. Yeah, it's or, the real deal. You know, deal. let's take a moment to hawk Brightwall dark Room. BrightwallDarkroom.com. Check it out. Lots of great writers. Uh, real, a lot, of, a lot of amazing reads. Check it out. Best independent. One of the best independent film sites. I'm a fan and right a now. Patreon supporter. Yes, you are. God. Listen to this lovely man, mm-hmm. this lovely human being. So. One of the things, though, that I feel like I didn't properly address is just how significant Bigfoot is, and I don't think that I realized it until I started doing this show. And every single episode he comes up, and I realize, you know, he, oh, God, here here comes a bad one. He is the phantom thread that weaves throughout this film and binds it together, maybe more than Shasta, more than the Fang, more than Doc. He is kind of like the the vestigial sack that collects all the emotional bile that is afflicting and poisoning these characters. He's the walking, talking version of the pain of not being able to let go. Doc might eventually be able to let go, or at least functionally adapt. Bigfoot cannot let go. Bigfoot is in 1955.
2: Hypocrisy. That's the difference between the two of them. Doc's not a hypocrite. Doc believes in things. Mm-hmm. Doc actually is, when he makes that gesture, the thing that saves somebody else's life, it's it's a real human gesture. Mm-hmm. I think Bigfoot is a hypocrite, and I think that that's important because the idea of being a drug peddler, who's also the law enforcement that punishes this, who also is embodying the the uh, rehab system, but is also the penal sy- Like The fact that you're all those things, you can't not be a giant robbing hypocrites. he's part of the hypocrisy yeah, it's and and it's like now when we see guys who spent their entire careers putting people behind bars for marijuana offenses who now suddenly are having to answer for that oh no well, they're, they're that, owning, their owning their own it. dispensaries yeah. they're buying into the system and you're seeing <laughs> law enforcement guys who spent their career punishing people for this shit now getting rich off of it in retirement mm-hmm. there's a hypocrisy that this system rewards and I think Bigfoot is a hypocrite he is the the weird appearances of Bigfoot right before our scene technically Bigfoot has appeared in the movie already he, he, he briefly does briefly does appears in, in his
1: commercial But with, for that is Channel Channel one of the Estates. weirdest
2: things in the movie that is one mm-hmm. of the weirdest things about Bigfoot is the that the first time we see him is all hippied up yeah and in selling this real estate thing that is supposed to benefit people that I assume Bigfoot would like to step on he hates yeah but there's a weird kink
1: to him, and I think it, you could almost call it a kink yeah. of his obviously many kinks, some of them involving frozen uh, frozen <laughs> chocolate-covered fruit. Uh, he wants—part of him wants to be Doc. Right. I think part of him really Which is wants why he hates to him. be free. And that's why he can't stand Doc, yeah. because you, you're right. He is a hypocrite. You know, He is a member of the LAPD whose partner has been murdered, and he won't eat— and it, this almost makes me feel worse for him. Not I, I. don't say this with judgment of this fictional character. I actually, my heart breaks for him when I think about this. He can't even avenge the death of the man he loves. He has to outsource it by cornering Doc into a position where he's forced to kill Vincent in Delicato's murder. You know, he has, says something like, "I'm in enough trouble with the captain as it is, and I've seen you on the range, so thank you, Doc. Do you get him?" Uh, there's a, there's a there's a miserable sadness to him. He does try to do good things. He gives Doc the heroin right. that Doc is going to need to get out. But it's always from the shadows yeah. of of his place in the world. He can never actually stand on his own two feet and act. Yeah. He needs Doc. And
2: he'll still keep feeding that system.
1: Yeah, and he, need, he needs Doc to be his interlocutor, if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. I don't know why I decided to risk it in the middle of a show. <laughs> um, but that's the, that's the word I had. That's what, what I went with. There you go. Uh, but I think that's also why he so badly wants to ab- almost absorb Doc and be Doc so he can be the guy that does that because it must gall him to look at Doc, the hippie. And the degenerate. See- and see the, the, the hippie scum yeah. degenerate and realize, no, Doc's the hero here. Yeah. Doc's the one that can move between all these worlds. Doc's the one that's going to rescue the dad. Doc's the one that's going to fuck over the Fang. I might help him, but he's the one that gets to kill Adrian Prussia. Yep. He's the one that's going to kill... Um, or not kill but he's gonna, he's going to marginally disrupt this organization. He's going to well, he's also going to kill Puck Beaverton. I can't do any of those things. Doc can do those things. This is now is this is Doc's time. My time's gone. My time's over. Yeah. And that's that's the movie. That's the movie is looking around going my time's over. What do I do with that? And I think you're so right that you know we're probably there's probably a lot of us walking around right now even who relatively young just going this is not my time man I'm watching the news I'm seeing this world this was not for me this does not feel normal to me and like you said maybe the only thing you can do is you know perform an you know it sounds cheesy saying it so baldly
2: perform an act of kindness Yeah. because that's all that's left and that's all that's available Yeah. is do one good thing this, this movie is the opposite of cynical it's really about battling that and yeah. ball- battling that Look, society crushes us towards cynicism, and I think when you live in times that are as gigantic as these, it's so easy to tend towards that. And it is—it's—it's it's the focusing on the human rather than the gigantic, I think, keeps you decent and keeps you keeps you in some way anchored. Yeah, and it's—I
1: mean, Pynchon said it best. The, I mean, I guess spoiler alert, but at the end of the novel, when Doc's driving in the fog, just waiting for it to clear, hoping that something better will be there this time. Yeah. And of course the movie one ups it with that great streak of PTA romanticism and he's with he's with his gal, he's with his girl. And they're driving into the fog and maybe it'll clear this time. Maybe they're not back together, but we'll see. And we'll see what we can see. And to me that's that's the central line of the movie and that's why every episode ends with our narrator saying that is because Sometimes that's all you can do. We'll see what we can see at the end of this mystery. Yeah. On that note, I have to thank you so much oh, for coming in today. Oh, this has been today. a pleasure. A genuine pleasure. And this has been so much fun talking to someone who loves this movie as unabashedly as I do. And that's another word I didn't know if I was going to pronounce it as soon as I started saying it. So I'm glad it came out right. I have loved talking about this with you. I love that you love the movie. I just love that there's other people out there that are as crazy about this, that are as moved by this and who, God damn it, even if they're told it's not part of the conversation, are going to talk about Christian, Bigfoot, Björnson
2: come hell or high water. Absolutely. Drew, tell people where they can find your work. Uh, you can find me at uh or 80sallover.com. 80s All Over is the now defunct podcast that you can find archive there. You can uh, – and I have a store there where I sell all of, my, all of my writing. I'm also on Patreon at Drew McQueenie. With that, thank you again
1: for coming on today. My thank pleasure. you for walking these purple shagged halls with me. Um, I'm going to walk you to your car. The alarm has stopped going off, but uh, or Todd Phillips could still be out there with a blow dart. Yep. I don't want you to get hurt. I'm going to help you out. And to everyone listening, we'll talk next time where finally, in the flesh – We will meet the hippie-hating mad dog
2: himself. Enter the flat Top.
0: (laughs) Decency is the anchor. Boy, oh boy, Drew sure nailed it there. When the amorphous fear of a doomed age lands right on your head and in your heart, and the mystery of modern life takes hold. That's when little decencies matter most. Docs Portello understands that too. Old Shastafe's romance with Mickey Wolfman may rub him all kinds of wrong ways, but here he is, taking a beating at Channel View, willing to do right by his lady, ex-old or otherwise, because it's the decent thing to do. It's the little decencies that matter, Drew said. We're going to be thinking and meditating and smoking on that one for quite a while. Because in an era like our own, in which mystery abounds and chaos reigns, it's the first thing we've heard in a long stretch that feels like undeniable, unambiguous truth. It's the little decencies that matter. Drew knows it, Doc knew it, and now we know it too. But what about our favorite Flintstone flat-topped LAPD detective? Think he'll figure that one out? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.